You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. And welcome to another episode of Thriving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. Hi, Kyla. Nice to talk to you. Yeah, I'm uh, in Toronto today at the Women Lawyers uh, Forum, the CBA National Women Lawyers Forum um, Conference. So that's what I'm spending my time doing. So is it is it training? Like, is it a conference, or is it like a strategic discussion, or what's the? What well, was yesterday was a day of of training and strategic discussions for the executive. And then today is the actual conference. So we've had four panels, plus we had a keynote speaker who was a lawyer from um, New York. And they were like the lead counsel on a number of the big challenges in the U.S. to like the Roe v. Wade case and to gay marriage rights. And they had litigated a number of those cases some successfully and some, as we know, unsuccessfully. So very interesting to hear them talk. Yeah, I'll bet. Well, there you go. You've fulfilled your ethics requirement now for uh, 2023 <laughs> for your CLE. Yeah, I think I checked that off a few times already, but, you know. Probably, yes. Yeah, keep, keep going. I haven't gone um, to the last conference we went to. Yeah, you usually like put put in the request at the law society, and then I go and and get credit once you you've got it approved by them. I mean, no, I haven't You're put hold, it in yet. Holding me back. But Sorry. while we're talking about while we're talking about ethics, Paul, yes, I have an ethics case for you dealing with driving law. Okay, let's hear it. <clears throat> this is a judicial ethics case out of Ontario. Uh, in uh, northwestern Ontario. So a justice of the peace there, like the same type of uh, judicial officer who would hear traffic court in BC, hears them in, in Ontario. And her son got a speeding ticket. Yes. This woman's, this woman's name is Anna Gibbon. Uh, she, was, she was working as a justice of the peace in Thunder Bay. Her son got, oh, not a speeding ticket, sorry, it was a failing to yield ticket. He was in an accident, um, allegedly didn't yield, um, and was issued this ticket, which he filed in dispute. And because she was the presiding justice of the peace in the area where the traffic court was going to take place, they had to bring an out-of-town judge and an out-of-town traffic court prosecutor to avoid any potential conflict of interest. For obvious reasons. Obvious reasons, yes. So apparently, this woman contacted the visiting justice of the peace, who was not aware. Like all they knew was they were being brought in, but they didn't know why or whether there was a conflict or whether it was, you know, short staffing. Like they hadn't been given any of this information at that time. You know, she contacted know and probably shouldn't know. No, I mean, that's the thing, right? Like, um, Although she did eventually find out, which I'll get to. Yeah. So she in, uh, gets a phone call from Justice of the Peace Gibbon, who says, hey, since you're visiting from out of town and I'm the local Justice of the Peace, why don't you come over for dinner at the night before your court? I'll cook you up a nice meal and we can hang out and chat um, and have a good time. 
Okay. <laughs> so the I, I know where justice, this is going now. Yes, the visiting justice accepts not being aware um, of what was going on, um, and then she gets into um, court and she sees the court file indicating that you know there's a conflict and with the name of this woman's son on the file, and she goes, "Oh shit." <laughs> cancels the dinner and at the same time given is out there phoning the out-of-town paralegal who was coming in to prosecute the case telling her i don't think there's a reasonable chance of conviction and do you know who i am and things like that oh my gosh essentially like exerting her her strong army authority of the court and uh the uh, visiting justice had to withdraw from the case because he felt he was in a conflict for having accepted the dinner offer. And then Gibbon finds out that he's withdrawn from the case, that it had to be adjourned because he couldn't hear it, and phones the court registry and the, the registry clerk and brings out the registry clerk who put the note on the file and then goes into the office using her courthouse security card, reads them out in person, wow, um, and and calls um, calls somebody on speakerphone. So there's witnesses listening to this, and threatens to take this person's job for putting the the conflict note on the file, and intimidated the court clerk. Oh my gosh! She's told by the senior justice, "You should go. You need to calm down." You need to think what you're about what you're doing. Go home, take a minute, and think about your behavior. Do you think she did that? No. Oh no, no, she did not. And then, so the the next trial scheduled. The next trial happens. He's convicted at trial, and she sends a note to the senior justice and said. His matter would have been dismissed last year if the clerk hadn't put that sticky note on his certificate. And he's now losing three demerits and his insurance is going through the roof. So much for justice for my son. Oh, my gosh. So this so, is somebody who fundamentally just doesn't get it, huh? Doesn't understand their role in the justice system. Doesn't understand the, the concept of the independence of the court. Doesn't understand. I mean, it doesn't matter what it was. It doesn't matter what it was. It wouldn't matter if my kid was charged with with the uh, assault or murder or what have you, you like this is just a fundamental failure to understand your role and mm -hmm. not having the the correct um attitude or or character to be in that role yep so she goes to a judicial conduct hearing unsurprisingly wow because having had every opportunity to walk it back and let the process play out free from influence she continued her her actions right until the end so she goes to a judicial conduct hearing and do you think in the judicial conduct hearing she did what they were probably hoping she would do say she was really sorry apologize for letting her emotions cloud her judgment indicate that she was really concerned about her son but that's no excuse for her behavior promise to never do it again take some counseling um you know did apologize do you think she did any of those things? Well, bearing in mind the fact that she hasn't done anything right, 
Um, I would assume she didn't. I mean, it, she was given the opportunity there by the, by the, I guess, chief judge to, as you say, walk it back that day or to take a deep breath and just walk away. She obviously is very invested in this person, their son's traffic ticket. And, uh, I guess she's willing to lose her job for it. Yeah. Yeah. But she, and she continued to try in the judicial conduct hearing to try and justify her behavior, um, to, she refused to acknowledge that what she had done was wrong. And there were apparently multiple times where she was like asked to write an apology letter, um, asked to, um, asked to demonstrate the situation and she wrote like apology letters that were just like ranty justifications uh she was yeah she was also found to have given false testimony in the judicial conduct hearing oh my gosh and so the court in determining uh what was going to happen to her (laughs) said a lapse in judgment well she okay so and and then she gets um the, the ultimate determination in her conduct hearing is that she needs to be removed as a justice of the peace. She appeals that to the Ontario Superior Court, so seeks judicial review of it. Oh, so that's how we're learning of it. Yes. Because so, of Ontario Superior Court decision, okay. Yes. I was wondering how we found out about this because I, I don't know yeah. if they publish these things necessarily if it's uh, reviewing conduct of a judicial officer. Anyway. Yeah, so the court the court on judicial review says a lapse in judgment, inappropriate conduct in the heat of the moment, a visceral reaction to deeply held historic distrust of justice institutions, she's indigenous. All of these could be forgiven in the right circumstances if, in the cold light of day, the moment having passed, the applicant came to grips with her duties as a jurist. But that did not happen. And uh, the applicant demonstrated repeatedly that she could not step away from the situation sufficiently to recognize her misconduct. Right up until the time she delivered her first draft apology letter, she believed that her conduct was explicable and justified because she felt her role as a mother was a proper basis for the steps she took. Well, I guess that's the end of her career. Uh, Like, I don't even know that you could be, I don't know if she was a lawyer before she was appointed there in BC. Now they are, they weren't always lawyers who were appointed as judicial yeah, justice you, to sit in traffic court but I, I don't even think you could be a lawyer after that i mean that's just a fundamental failure to understand your role as a as a as a jurist as they yeah. said um yeah, and like, and incapable of of recognizing it after the fact you know when the when the when the heat is off i suppose you imagine that though like taking your entire career and throwing it all away over a three point eighty five dollars speeding ticket that somebody else got. Like, what's what's what are the real consequences? He might get a license suspension, and so what? You'll have to pay for him to have a driver, maybe, um, or Uber or taxis. His insurance is going to go up a little bit, like not a un- completely unaffordable amount, like a small amount. And, and, and a couple hundred dollars a year, maybe. Like, wh- and he was convicted wow. in the end. He was convicted in the end by somebody yeah. else. Right. Like, so he yeah, had like a trial how- and was found guilty. Oh, uh, so much for justice for her son, Bo. Uh, I just like, I don't understand like how, um, how you don't do the like calculation of this is an expensive, crappy situation. And I'm, I don't agree with the outcome to this is, you know, this is worth throwing it all away. 
Well, um, I'm assuming in this case that she didn't get legal advice because I cannot imagine a lawyer would have let her present a non-apology letter. And I cannot imagine a lawyer would not have persuaded her that this is a circumstance that there should be contrition, uh, and try and turn it around. Um, right. I suppose in the end, I mean, this, these things come out and, you know, we've got our justice system and we, you know, the, the, the court sort of, in my view, arrogantly protect the justice system to suggest that, that, uh, all jurists are dispassionate and, um, and approach things with great objectivity and are skilled. And, um, we can have that sort of, as we talk about the, like RCMP forensic labs and things like that, arrogant confidence that we have in Canada, that the, uh, the things are going to be dealt with appropriately through the appropriate steps. And here, you know, you've got somebody who's clearly not suited for that job. And gotten to that job. Like she's not suited for that job if she can't approach it this way. And you wonder, okay, well, she just happens to be one person, right? How many, how many tickets did she preside over, over the years where, you know, she didn't have the, uh, the right attitude or, or, you know, mental processing to be able to do that job. Yep. Exactly. How many, how, how many more, how many more are there out there in the, you know, filling these roles across the country? I, yeah, I mean, you think about it, like, I, you know, from time to time as a lawyer, you get contacted by people who are, are members of the judiciary, um, or who are in positions of power, who have friends or family members they want to refer to you. In none of those instances have any of those people done anything other than, like, make the connection and then stay out of the process. Yeah. A very far away connection. Yeah. Like may want to, you should, you should be, you should, it would be wise to contact a lawyer and there's a number who deal with it. And you may want to talk to this person and I can't help you or give you, or give you legal advice. Yep. Yeah. So I, you know, just like to look at it from the perspective of a lawyer who's who's been, you know, representing people in similar situations to see how far removed that conduct is from what the norm is, is also quite surprising. Like, it's not like the norm is people who are in these positions, whether they're, they're crown or judges or, or politicians, um, are, you know, checking in and checking up on things, even a little bit. The norm is that they are out completely hands off, completely arm's length from everything. Having said that, I've represented, uh, you know, family members of people who work in the firm, but that's me as a lawyer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So, well, you know, a different, different role. Well, you think totally like different. my, if I was a judge and my kid's name was somewhere on a file in that courthouse, I wouldn't even want to be in that courthouse. Yeah. Not putting justice on the line or, you know, my career, but firstly, justice, like you think about it from the perspective of individuals looking at it, you know, I just spoke a moment ago about the cynicism I have, um, about the, the arrogance that we have in Canada. Think about it from the perspective of anybody else who ever had a traffic ticket in that courthouse 
you're sitting there thinking to yourself, oh, is it the, the way that you succeed in this courthouse is you got to be connected to the, is that what that JJP who, who, uh, conducted my trial thinks, you know, that there's got to be some, some, uh, some inroad, some backdoor to success. It just, it so undermines the confidence in the justice system. But again, the confidence in the justice system is, uh, is also in my view, um, informed by arrogant stupidity. Um, so I don't know how to transition to this next topic. <laughs> so we're just going to change topics. I cannot well, think of go. a good transition. Well, arrogant stupidity. Nope. Um, uh, so, um, this is about the highway patrol. So news came out, uh, this week that the BC highway patrol is now no longer going to be doing day-to-day traffic call responses. So in British Columbia, you have um, municipalities, with the exception of Vancouver, that have their own police forces, but they rely on the RCMP's integrated highway patrol unit to come and do like crash investigations, you know, show up at an accident scene, do the traffic control, take the reports, fill out the MD6020, all of that stuff. They rely on these additional RCMP officers to supplement their duties. And the RCMP is um, moving away from allowing them to do that, essentially saying, as of next year, they are no longer going to be filling in those gaps. The BC Highway Patrol instead is going to be doing full-time targeted enforcement for things like speeding, distracted driving, and impaired driving. So they'll be out conducting more roadblocks, apparently. They'll be doing more speed traps, apparently. They'll be doing more, um, more you know, distracted driving stinging operations. And interestingly, there's never really been, like, any explanation as to why Highway Patrol was filling in gaps for for towns that had moved to a municipal police department. But I think that this change is spurred in part by the Surrey police situation. Because you and I have talked a number of times about Surrey police and uh, and needing to um, staff up the traffic members in the Surrey police during the periods of transition, not being able to do effective traffic enforcement. And I kind of think that this is maybe a little bit the government giving like an FU um, to to Surrey and being like, now you're also not going to get the highway patrol. I don't know that that's what it is. I think it's just one of these situations where they're saying, how can we use our resources best to try and accomplish the goals we want to accomplish? Right now we've got, you know, trained officers whose jobs are operate laser radar guns and know how to how to record that evidence and and uh, uh, know how to record the evidence for traffic court and be prepared and have the time to go to traffic court um, and have that as a dedicated duty. That sound behind me is regularly scratching. Just let him finish. No, I didn't hear it. Okay. Um, have that dedicated duty and then they're looking at it and saying to themselves, well, you know what, we're taking these officers away. Uh, when it can be other officers who can do collision investigations and things like that and who are, are there and they have the resources in the local detachment to come out and set up all the pylons and deal with it. So to me, it just seems like rather than taking officers who have a specific duty to enforce 
uh, uh, the motor vehicle act and the criminal code on the highways, they are saying, okay, well, we don't need those officers to be, to be pulled off and, and dealing with the collisions. But my concern is, are they going to even bother investigating collisions? And if they're not coming out to investigate collisions, what happens about, you know, the person wow. blood alcohol concentration is at 190. Well, uh, and they're hanging out at the highway after the accident. They don't have to worry about any police scrutiny. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to get in a drunk driving collision, I guess do it on a highway. Um, <laughs> you know, do it on Highway One. <laughs> do it on the uh, uh, you know Highway Ninety One. Yeah, police aren't coming out. Well, well, no. See, so now the police are turning around and they're saying, "Well, hold up, we don't have enough police officers to be able to do to fill in this gap." We, you know, we've been relying on this as the status quo. So, government, you have to give us million a million dollars at least so we can hire more officers to fill in our traffic gaps deck chairs on the titanic um right wish, <laughs> pushing around pushing things around on the i i don't know like it just seems to me it's just moving around trying to figure out who's going to pay for something and nobody wants to pay for traffic enforcement it's the you know it, and it's the funny thing too because you know you get a lot of argument about what police should be doing like should police be dealing with mental health calls should be police be dealing with people who are or dealing with addiction and homelessness and there's a lot of great reasons why police are not you know the the answers to those questions to systemic crime that comes as a result of homelessness and addiction and mental illness police are not the 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 solution to that they're a band aid. Um, and not a very good band-aid. They're like a band-aid that makes you sick. Uh, but when it comes to traffic enforcement, it's hard to like think of a legitimate argument that police should not be doing things like speed enforcement, distracted driving enforcement. I mean, putting aside that there's flaws of the laws, but speed enforcement, distracted driving enforcement, impaired driving enforcement. Like these are things that generally speaking as a society, we can go, those are good jobs for police to do assuming they're doing it in a bias-free fashion and you know obviously that's a whole other can of worms but those are things that are directly in line with what we expect police to be doing and yet it is something that we appear to and the evidence is coming out now give the police the fewest dollars and resources to do effectively there's so much to that because when and we've seen this historically over the course of my career and i watched it long before i became a lawyer there'll be some bad car accident somebody will die a child will be killed by a drunk driver and suddenly there'll be a integrated policing plan strategy and there'll be a bunch of money put into it and then nobody's died for a while and people are driving terribly i mean lots of people people die on the highways all the time but you know what i'm saying like it's not it's not yeah. something that really grabs the public's uh the public's attention um and you know they case cutbacks and there's fewer and fewer of them and next thing you know like <laughs> there's a fight about anybody going out to a traffic accident who's ever yeah <laughs> we're not going out to the accidents anymore because we don't have enough money we don't have the money either well okay who's gonna pay nope and in the end it, in the end it's the public that pays and the public doesn't yeah. pay for police the public pays and that the roads become less safe yes but I don't think this is really an issue with Surrey. I think it's probably more an issue with Nelson or West Vancouver or Delta. 
um, because the, um, you know, those are the municipalities who are always looking, the cities are always saying, oh, well, can we cut back here? Can we cut back there? The province can yeah. fill in the cost. Exactly. I'm the highway patrol, the highway patrol. My hours are long and my pay is low, but I'll do my best to keep you driving slow. I'm just a doing my job. I'm the highway patrol. There. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that uh, musical moment of the podcast. <laughs> There's one in every episode. Um, <laughs> anyway, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. It's going to be interesting to me to see if the provincial government gives the municipalities the money and then what comes to Surrey because they're already, you know, supposedly giving some money to Surrey to help with the transition. Are they going to give an additional amount of funds because of the pullback on highway patrol or am I right? And this is a spite decision. Yeah, I don't think it's a spite decision. Well, I think whatever. I think it's a decision and somebody else is going to have to figure out who's going to pay now. Yeah. And um, maybe we'll change the name of the highway patrol again. Yeah. Hello, All right. Just patrolling now, you know. Paul, it's, it's time for your favorite part of the podcast. What is that? The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. The week, the week, the week, the week. A surprising bestseller? The pinpoint method of cross-examination is catching on. Law firms and new litigators across Canada have caught on to cross-examination the pinpoint method. Kyla Lee's straightforward handbook that teaches you effective cross-examination skills. Actually saying, what is that to my, my Google Home started talking to me. Um, <laughs> what is, uh, who's the ridiculous driver of the week this week? I, I have not done any research on this. Usually I'm looking for something I couldn't find anything. Yeah, usually, usually you find our ridiculous driver, but this week uh, they kind of exposed themselves so this week we are um dealing with a driver out of langley um and this individual uh managed to commit a number of driving related offenses um apparently with a some for some reason that is not yet clear or at least public uh a woman hanging out of the passenger seat maybe being dragged um in the pat from the passenger seat of a car, this woman sees this this car driving in the wrong direction down the road with front end damage, driver's side door open, a woman's legs out the passenger door. So she does a U-turn. She follows this car and is like on the phone with 911 when all of a sudden the car just out of nowhere turns and drives directly into the Langley Community Policing Station. And I don't mean like into the parking lot. I mean into the police station. <laughs> I'm searching my mind for a reason or an explanation and I cannot think of one. Right? Yeah. So, so far the driver is charged with assault um, with a weapon, criminal negligence causing bodily harm and flight from police. If you drive into the it's like turning yourself in. <laughs> yeah. So I I mean it gets even weirder when you look at the charges. Um and dangerous driving, obviously. Uh, but the 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 charges are very strange. The person's being held for a bail hearing. Um but it's 
doesn't appear as of yet, and maybe there was blood samples taken or something, but it doesn't appear as of yet that there's an impaired driving charge. So even weirder is that this person maybe was sober. Maybe, maybe there's a psychological component to this that who knows. Weird. But like quite ridiculous drive driving. It's one of my strangest combinations of facts and, uh, close to home. And, uh, Maybe just trying to get to the police station. Maybe maybe, maybe, maybe the driver was being assaulted by the person whose legs were out the door. And they yeah, and they were trying to escape. Out of the driver's side, and therefore their door was open and thought, okay, well, there's the police station. I'll drive up to that. But you'd think that information would have come out by now, like at oh, the no. mail hearing or, or in the course of a statement given to police. Like, Well, it, it's, I have a lot of questions. Yeah, I want answers. And unfortunately, a trial's going to be 18 months from now. <laughs> well, we'll see if we remember about it when the time comes. Yeah. If we do, we'll have to give an update. Yeah, we probably will never get answers on this. It'll probably be some sort of a plea and no one will ever know. Um, a, but a, for now. On a Thursday afternoon when there's no media there. For now, we can all take the lesson from this. The very important lesson, which is that if you are driving and you need help, don't drive into the police station. But what are you going to do? Like, if you're being assaulted, you're going to wait in the parking lot for the police to come out and hope they come out? I suppose you could beep your horn. Oh, yeah. Beep your horn, pull over and call 911, flag that lady down that's following you. Like, there's all sorts of options. If you're able to drive the car, you can at least, you know, I don't know. Maybe the passenger cranked the wheel and drove into the police station to, like, rescue herself hmm well that would be the dangerous driving then passenger the plot (laughs) well i think the the wrong the wrong side of the road driving was probably the probably the dangerous driving driving into a uh, intentionally driving into a building would also be dangerous driving don't you think yes anyway (laughs) um that's our broadcast ball i enjoyed this and if you have a driving law, thank you. And if you have a driving law related issue, you can give us a call at 604-685-8889 or find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.